0: Well, it hasn't happened yet.
1: I'm Brian.
2: I'm Carrie.
1: This is Isaac. And I'm thrumming like a taut wire in my office right now. So ready to talk about this. To explain that extremely weird turn of phrase, when I was at Duke, going back to the seminary episode, shout out Antonia, subscribe to the pod so you can hear that incredible app. One of the professors who was talking about in an email talking about why diversity training was bad, said that the task of theology was for theologians to be um, not concerned with the problems of the world, but to be thrumming like a taut wire in their offices.
0: What does that mean? Like, like taut, like are you saying like taut, like a like tightly pulled taut wire? Okay. Yes, a taut wire. <laughs> nice. Th- absolutely
1: thrumming while contemplating the Trinity. <laughs> oh, Lord.
2: Oh my god! I thought it was a sports reference. I really did.
0: I, I no, thought it, I had something to do with like electricity. I was like, I don't know what. I'm, I'm not a real head, I guess.
1: <laughs> I mean, it's uh, extremely Freudian, so I—that's uh, <laughs> yes. the best read I can give. But I am thrumming to talk about masculinity today.
2: Aren't we all, aren't we all always thrumming to talk about masculinity, but specifically today in the context of a First Things article about Alabama football, a series of words I could not have anticipated ever uttering.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. First Things Catholic print journal uh, started in the 90s by actually a a really weird group of people, R.R. Reno. I think Howard was involved initially and then like bounced pretty quickly. Um, But it, it has a website. And in recent years, especially in the Trump years, it's had incredible takes defending some of the worst things in the history of both Christianity and the Catholic Church. But also, RR Reno has just used it recently to like pump out COVID conspiracies and election steal stuff. The guy has really fallen off in a very bizarre way. When did have y'all like spent much time on the first things website? And how did y'all hear about it? I mean, I I knew Uh, about it. I'll go ahead.
2: Like, (laughs) genuinely, my first exposure to it was when I saw just like a random headline on Twitter that was like the violent delights of Alabama football. No, not violent delights. That's a different literary reference. The violent (laughs) liturgy of Alabama football. And I was like, oh, are we doing this today? So I had no context for it. I mean, I knew it was like Catholic or whatever because it's in the Christian publishing world, but I'm not Catholic. So i never really explored.
1: Yeah. Well, I, thanks for clarifying for the listeners that you're not Catholic. I think <laughs> they've been really worried about
0: that.
2: Some people get into it. It's not like some Episcopalians, it's hard to
0: tell. Mm, yeah. Anglo Catholics. We're not gonna go there. No. Um yeah, for me, it it's it's mostly was in terms of like a lot of like uh, art and faith type of like Catholic writers, um, you know, every once in a while, First Things would put out something about like the death of the Catholic writer um, and just like these kind of long pieces about the glory days of Graham Greene and, and Flannery O'Connor and uh, uh, others. Um, and so that, that's really the only thing I knew about it. I, I, I don't search it out. Uh, I just looked at the masthead to see if there's anybody on the masthead that kind of uh, friends of the show or any or otherwise. And it's like just a bunch of people I've never heard of. So uh, yeah, this is basically my first experience with it as well.
1: Well, there's no, sorry, but there are some very infamous people on the featured authors list. So Arab Amari, Mark Bauerlein, freaking um, Matthew Rose and Matthew Schmitz, both of them the worst Matthews on earth. Uh, but I will say that we have... This is not the first... Oh my God. I was going to say the first First Things reference on the pod. Uh, <laughs> our friend, the Baylor Sword Poet, <laughs> is a published First Things author. Oh, yes. Oh. Well... Yeah, his uh, poetry appears on this dreaded website. But I just want to give people a, uh, <laughs> a little taste of what First Things is about right now on its website. The web-exclusive title article titles are The Merits of Romney's Pro-Family Policy, (laughs) What to Know About the Synodal Way, no clue what that means, Biden's Choice in China, Prohibiting Prayer in Australia, and then from the print edition, where things get even more awesome, Vaccines in Fetal Tissue, T.S. Eliot and the Jews, and The Rise of the Middle Ages,
0: that one, the last one. I don't know why the last one feels so much more on point than the rest of those, but all of those just track.
1: <laughs> oh, and they have a recent podcast featuring Mark Bauerline called Mrs. Obama's White Flight Narrative. Oh, wow.
2: my lord! <laughs> yep. So, oh lord, have mercy.
1: That's not even all the gems that we have for you from this absolute hell mouth of internet content. Yesterday, Carrie was browsing the uh. What was it trending topics? Yeah.
2: yeah. Well, yeah, let me uh let me pull up the image right quick. Um it was like the trending topics on first things right now was like homosexuality, pornography and then podcast and then the fourth thing was so the the three top sins.
1: Yes. It's true. The three worst sins that you can commit. Podcasting Pornography and Homosexuality. I don't know if that describes our listeners or the first things
0: <laughs> listeners. Well, well, the first, the next one is Benedict Option. So I think that's where we diverge a little bit from our <laughs> listeners, perhaps. It
2: was. Yeah. So that was crazy. Uh, um, but the reason that we're talking about it at all is because uh, we all read an article about Alabama football as um, spiritual formation that was published on First Things, and we all had like a really visceral reaction to it, so we wanted to get into it.
1: Yeah, this is uh, the Catholic as if if there was a Catholic Friday Night Lights. As Carrie already said, this would be how awful it is. So this is like a part two follow up to our meditations on on the uh, spiritual nature of football. It ended up being a more prominent topic on the pod that I anticipated. And yet we are all from the South in one way or another.
2: Truly. Well, I think that the thing that I most viscerally reacted to in this article is, that I mean, like it's literally titled the violent liturgies of Alabama football or mm-hmm. something along those lines. Um, and the kind of point of the article is that, uh, Nick Saban is like a master liturgist and catechist because he's like forming these young men (laughs) into into being like good people, not just good football players. And he just happens to do it while winning a lot of championships. But I mean, this guy like really romanticizes like the violence of football and stuff. And so my first reaction was like, we are talking about a sport that literally causes brain damage. Like it is a fact that like you come out of this sport, having played it for like almost any amount of time and you are like, you have holes in your brain. So I don't know that we need to turn it into some sort of like spiritual formation.
0: Well, and it also like all the greats, Sabin is a catechist and a liturgist as much as a coach. So he's not the only one. He's just, he's a, in the line of greats. He might be the, uh, the uh, exemplar of the greats. You know, I, I go back to the title. The violent liturgy of Alabama football, and it sounds like a bad young adult novel title. Like that's what it sounds like when I when I first heard it. it's like the violent liturgy of me and you, or um, you know, oh, the, it's like one of
2: those like novel generator
0: names. Yes, the violent liturgy of hope and love, or something like that. It just sounds like it's like so puffed up and so just like he's like uh, you could just imagine the author. Uh, do we want to talk about him now or come back to him? But you can just imagine the author late at night just sitting there and be like the violent liturgy of. The violent liturgy of Alabama football. Well, you could just see the, the I, lights I do go on. I think that
2: the phrase, like the phrase unlocks something for me about like the author's relationship to masculinity. <laughs> there's like this, yeah, you, everyone's probably seen this if you've been on Tumblr, but since like 2010 or whatever, but there's like the art piece from the 80s where the artist has words over a picture and it says, uh, you construct." intricate rituals to touch the skin of other men. And it's been used, you know, in like 8,000 different contexts since. But you can just tell that this guy is like really, like he he's really locked into the idea of like violence and liturgy coming together. Like, yes, this is so masculine. And I'm just like, it's the intricate rituals, baby. It's the intricate rituals.
1: Yes, yeah. Um, let me Let me create a huge football monolith that's like a $100 million business so I can slap some men on the ass. <laughs> <laughs> no. I do want to... We should get to the author. But first, I just want to talk about the like most hilarious part of the article, which is how obvious it is that this author, Peter Lighthart, does absolutely nothing about football, the SEC, and or Nick Saban. Like He talks in this as if he's like, you know, some sort of expert, but he's clearly never, ever spoken to Nick Saban. <laughs> I, I can't even imagine Nick Saban like being in a room with this person. And he obviously like knows absolutely nothing about football. Um, so just some of the stuff in it that, that is hilarious is he talks about how like Saban is out there telling players that they should come to Alabama, not because of, not for the purpose of winning championships, but like so that they can become like Better men, or like this, so that they can learn how to do everything the right way. When recently there was a leaked Zoom call of Nick Saban giving a recruiting pitch, and it 100% is about winning championships. <laughs> I mean, it's just, you know, the I mean, so on some level, this the thing that makes the article incredible is that it's all Peter Lighthart's projection about what he thinks Alabama football is, but you know, what he never touches on is like, I mean, Carrie already alluded to it, like the physical damage of football, but also the fact that these payers are absolutely 100% getting paid to play at Alabama. And the fact that Alabama football is a $200 million a year Um, like profit scheme and that like Nick Saban, Alabama is good because they spend more money on their football program than anyone else. He has a over a hundred million dollar budget annually for the football program. So like the notion that all of this is happening, like just because he's like some incredible liturgist rather than there's this massive amount of capital and extortion of labor, like moving towards this one end It's just hilarious, but I it it goes to the ways that so many people try to kind of romanticize amateurism in sports. That you know what what we're really seeing here is about the student athletes, and when you know, without huge amounts of money, it doesn't matter how good of a coach Nick Saban was, none of this would be possible. Um, So yeah, I, I just it's some way the article is hilarious because of how how much of the reality of the college football world that it papers
0: over, which in a lot of ways is exactly what the church does. So, well, he also tries to call, he's he's, he's, brought it around. Yeah. Right, there it is. I mean this I was going to say this is actually the third or fourth time we've talked about football. Uh we also talked about it with Hillary uh if you remember yeah, but anyway. But like he also talks about the you know drills having a moral dimension and how this moral aim like runs through the entire program. It's like give me a break. Like there's never been more projection than that right there. The idea of he's watching this these games on Saturday night and he's like you know who's like me, Nick Saban. And it's like Nick Saban all Nick Saban cares about is 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 winning football games. That's all he cares about. I I I have been uh, public about my feelings about how college football coaches are the worst people on earth, um, and you know I would I would probably put Saban in there with them. <laughs> there's no, there's no, to, to me, there's no doubt that all of these people are just all they care about is that they don't care about the kids that are playing for them. They don't care about any of that. As soon as they're not useful, they're gone. I will say though, I looked up the graduation rates while while you were talking, and I was I was surprised. Anybody want to take a guess on the graduation rate of Alabama football players?
1: It's oh, you know what I think yeah. in I think in general it's much higher than people would anticipate. Yep. I, would, I would say
0: it's probably above ninety percent. It's right at eighty percent, but they're in the top four. Um, and there's probably that's probably a, not a statistic that's necessarily helpful because a lot of that probably is about just getting more time uh, around to be able to kind of get to the NFL. But I was surprised by that. So,
2: well, I also I, I mean like I I do I don't want to like. Um, forget the dimension, which, which Lightheart does not mention at all in the article, which is that college football coaches like Nick Saban are overwhelmingly white men being pe- paid to yell at young black men who are from the ages of like 18
0: to 22 and like on their own for the first time. Well, Carrie, but, but wait, you don't understand because the drills have a moral dimension and they inoculate character traits as well as physical skills. He, he goes through this in the article. Don't worry about it. It's fine. <laughs>
1: yeah, that dynamic is not well, but I do want to get to this because um, as we move down the thing. But you know, one of the things that Saban is infamous for, right, is screaming at people. You know, that a couple of years ago when Lane Kiffin was his offensive coordinator, there was a famous game where um Alabama had like a bad Possession, and they had to punt. And Nick Saban, like the camera, caught him absolutely losing his shit on Lane Kiffin on the sideline. And after the game, they were like, "What were you talking to?" Uh, you know, we was, we saw you really vehemently going at um, Coach Kiffin there. What were you talking? And he was like, "I wasn't going at him. Those are called ash chewings." Like that's a quote that he had in the press, he was like, "Those are called ash chewings." I mean, it, it's just like. Um, you know, when he was at the Miami Dolphins, one of the th- he completely lost the team because he tried to treat them the exact way he treated college students. And there's an infamous story where he's like, a player got hurt during a drill and he like ordered them to keep drilling and like ran over to show them how to do it correctly while stepping over the injured player. Like, um, but as Brian said, that's a, uh, you know that's got kind of a moral. That's a part of the moral formation.
0: Well, and, and Lane Kiffin like that. It finally came out that Lane Kiffin said, you know, after like some play that had happened before the ass chewing was dumb. Players make dumb plays, and then Nick Saban like through the headset, said, "No, dumb offensive coordinator is called dumb plays or something like that." And so it was like it was just like this huge petty thing happening like in real time for all the other coaches. It's just he's he's ridiculous. Anyway, roll tide, right? <clears throat> Isn't that what you say right now? Roll tide.
1: Yeah. Anyway, I. I do want to just like read through some of these paragraphs, because I think that uh, we need to like break down the language here, because he's saying Lightheart is saying more than he leads on. Recruiting is obviously one of the main ingredients of Sabin's magic sauce. Tell us more about the magic sauce and its ingredients. Moving on. <laughs> <laughs> he spots talent, but he also observes and listens to figure out what motivates each player and determine whether or not they fit into his process. Again, how Lightheart knows this? No clue. Pure projection. He brings in new players who ease into slots vacated by departing juniors and seniors. When Derrick Henry takes his runaway tank shtick to the NFL, there's a Damian Harris waiting in the wings, then a bouncing wrecking ball like Najee Harris. Notice that he talks about these black athletes as if they are not human beings—a runaway tank, tank stick. a bouncing wrecking ball.
2: Well, I it's, mean, and they—I mean, literally, it characterizes all of the players as puzzle pieces, which is like a little bit of a tell.
1: Right, he's just slotting in a new crop. But it's not just recruiting or individual stars at Alabama. Saban has created a culture that I suspect, again, I suspect. no firsthand like. <laughs> No firsthand evidence of this ultimately reflects his Catholic convictions. <laughs> and then here comes Brian's fairy line. Like all the greats, Saban is a
0: catechist and liturgist as much as a coach. You just know he was sitting there and he had this line. He's like, I just got to write something to get to this line, man. He, you, that, you know, he's just been building up to get to that line. He's like, this could be so good. You know, his first things. Like, I'm all ready to pop off on first things.
2: I don't, look, we've all been there. We've all had like one good line and nothing to support it and have to
0: like
2: just like right around to see if we're going to get there. But I don't know that this was the article to go with. <laughs> right. I don't know that that was the line you needed.
0: It's like, get a Twitter account. That, that could have been your tweets. Well, I love how, <laughs> I love the next bit though, is that he's like his
1: catechesis. I mean, it, okay. Is rooted in a serenity prayer insight Focus your energy and mind on what you can what you control every minute of every day. So the guy who talks about giving his coaches and players ash chewings is actually basing this all on the serenity prayer. That makes sense. Okay, I'm gonna read the serenity prayer because I think we need to dig down even more into like the absolute wild imagination of Peter Lightheart right now. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference, living one day at a time, enjoying one moment at a time, accepting hardship as a pathway to peace, taking as Jesus did, this sinful world as it is, not as I would have it, trusting that you will make all things right if I surrender to your will, so that I may be reasonably happy in this life and supremely happy with you forever in the next. Amen. (laughs) Like, okay, what, what are we supposed to take from this other than Lightheart thinks that in this scenario, Nick Sabin is Jesus and the <laughs> players are the ones who are like living in the sinful world, hoping that Saban will make all things right if they surrender to his will.
2: Oh, boy. <laughs> well, I, as much as I love shitting on Nick Saban... <laughs> I was, like, less interested in in what that article was doing about Alabama football specifically and more, like, I, I was just, like, why are you so invested, PD, in, in having your, like, weird faith be so, like, hyper-masculinized? <laughs> like, he's, like, I have to turn Nick Saban into Jesus in the serenity prayer, otherwise, like, I'll feel like less of a man while watching Alabama football. Like, is that what's happening here right now? Mm -hmm. I just could not figure out what was going on in that little head of his.
1: Well, I want to keep going in this paragraph because this is absolutely 100% the like key takeaway here. Okay. Um, so, learn to find satisfaction in preparation, in conditioning, practice, academics. Learn to delight in the nuts and bolts of execution. Don't dream of holding up a trophy. Don't listen to puffy press coverage. Do everything right, and the outcome will take care of itself. Mm-hmm. And then there's just this incredible like next line everything means everything. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> I mean, I think this is it, right? Isn't it? Ultimately, this is what he wants Christianity to be. Right? He's like, I wish I could completely control the like other Christians around me to the point that they look at me as a god. <laughs> I mean, do y'all see any of that coming through here? Like this brand of ACNA, sort of hyper-masculine stuff, which is like, you know, based on this kind of total control.
2: Yeah. Well, and I also see it as like an understanding of, of Christianity or of or maybe specifically Catholicism for Peter as like a set of rigid rituals that if you just keep doing them, then you will, you will get so much stronger in the Lord. Like, like, like it treats your faith as if, as if it's a muscle that you can build. And if you just keep building it, if you keep practicing every day, then like, maybe you won't ever Experience setbacks like maybe you'll become the Alabama football dynasty of Christianity, which is, in my experience, not how faith works. But I don't know. I'm also not like a Catholic man in Alabama.
1: (laughs) I will say that Lightheart is not Catholic. Oh, Um, yeah. I I think he's either Acna or Reformed. Mm
0: -hmm. I mean, it's it's there's a there's a. I mean, so it's like you know implicit in a lot of like football BS is you know things like next man up, you know, do your job, um, these things that are are, are significantly lacking in any kind of uh, if you can talk about theology, like grace, the idea that if you make a mistake, it's gonna be okay because the next time around you're going to have another opportunity to fix that mistake or or whatever. And and so like that's missing in that paragraph, which is like that paragraph is about rote performance, discipline It's about like, Carrie, like you were saying, never making mistakes, just kind of like working that muscle over and over again into like this, what becomes like this weird form of almost like sanctification, right? Like where this is the thing where we're going to ultimately, we don't need Alabama football or we don't need Jesus because we've been, we've been put through this, this process. And now we are uh, Nick Saban, (laughs) you know, to take that (laughs) metaphor to a really weird place. But it's like, it's like, that's what it, that's what it brings up for me is this idea of like, you're not actually kind of living your, through your faith you're actually just being put through this process of um that's going to spit something out in the end where everything kind of looks the same at the end so
1: yeah i mean and just to um i mean just to go back to some of the racial overtones in this the next sentence is alabama players get demerits if they leave their jerseys untucked during the yes. game when Saban arrived, one fan noticed the Tide's sidelines were yes. trash-free at the end of games. Alabama players are barraged with Proverbs. We want to develop thoughts, habits, and priorities. Which is incredible. <laughs> um, yeah. Go ahead.
2: No, it's like, but the second half of that sentence is like, uh, we want to develop thoughts, habits, and priorities, which is in some definitions, uh, the definition of character. And I was like, is it? Mm. <laughs> is that what character is?
1: but even that like again it's like oh, okay well if they leave their jersey untucked right like then then they get demerits i mean it just you know the the sort of
0: oh okay yeah i want to keep going cuz And, and the demerits the the the, the 50s it, like the 50s like overtone of demerits too is just amusing it's and and I don't know. And like, I think you're right about the whole thing about like, look, before they came to Alabama, they were just a bunch of people that would throw trash everywhere. You've seen the type. And then, but now, now that they're here at Alabama, they clean up everything. It's just like, it's, it's such a, yeah. Anyway, keep going.
1: It's like, he's just, Peter Lightheart is just getting off, imagining Saban telling um, young black men to pull their pants up or something. Yeah, It's like, they won't even let them untuck a shirt. Hell yeah! I mean, <laughs> I just but the other funny thing about this is just um, how absolutely stupid coach psychology is. So <laughs> yes. instead of this like deep catechesis, they're like fucking mantras, or we want to develop thoughts, habits, and priorities, which is literally say nothing other than we want your brain to function. Except this game makes it not,
0: <laughs> and and out of out of yourself and into the team. You're you you have not read that part yet, but like everything about this shit is about killing anything that's individualistic about you, anything that might be unique, anything that might be something that you can take into the world and kind of uh, express yourself with that that is all gone in these kind of situations it's like nope we're all going to look the same and we're all going to do it the uh, do it the right way so it doesn't matter who the running back is because we've always got another one uh, ri- lined up right behind him right so it's 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 such bullshit i am I'm, I'm getting triggered by my my former uh sports uh, <laughs> sports uh what do you call it participations but you know that stuff of like this idea of like you know you hear it all the time stuff like sacrifice your body for the team it's like People like Nick Saban do not care. You, they tell you to to sacrifice your body for the team because they know they have six people right behind you. So if you get hurt, it doesn't matter. Maybe you'll stay on. Maybe you won't. Doesn't matter to him because you have another, you know, um, another person coming with their tank-like shtick sh- uh, or whatever the hell he's talking about. Anyway, I'm going to mute now. <laughs> it's getting me all worked up. And Brian is like. <laughs>
1: Triggered about playing high school football right now. Yes. Uh,
0: but I think the bigger point
1: here is just like, okay, another maxim, you never stay the same. You either get better or you get worse. Is that this is just like fortune cookie bullshit? And Lightheart is like, this is like violent liturgy and catechesis. And like, it's incredible how deep this goes. And it's based in the Serenity Prayer when really it's like, shit your middle school PE teacher could come up with, like or get out of a quotes book where I mean it's like Jordan Belford and a uh, Wolf of Wall Street. Like that's the kind of like level this shit is on. But Whoa, here's Lightheart awesome. trying to turn it into some sort of like you know spiritual guide on the level of like Ignatius of Loyola.
0: <laughs> yeah, I I am, I am 100% shocked there was no kind of uh mention of like a Benedict Benedict rule of life or something in this article. Like this was there this is Sabin's rule of life. That might be the next one. So, uh hey, first things if you need somebody to write that, hit me up. I'm I'm available. Um but, you know, but too it's like, you know, when you think about like the the things um, you know, their barrage with proverbs. We want to develop thoughts, habits, and priorities. That just sounds like, you know that that has been preached in some kind of non-denominational um, uh, church at some point, or maybe even Methodist or Episcopal, who knows. they like that three points of like, of ha- thoughts, habits, and priorities. What are your thoughts, habits, and priorities? You know that's been preached at some point. And so it's, there's an interesting connection, I think, between that kind of like Basic, banal football coach speak, and how sometimes that actually does like inspire and kind of get pushed into the church. It's not Christianity, right? It's just this thing that gets kind of ported out of Alabama football and put into the church at times. Uh, and there's an interesting overlap there between the kind of shallowness of both of those, I think.
1: Well, if you want a slogan that means absolutely nothing but has three parts, may I uh, offer up oh, open of minds, open I, hearts, open doors? I
0: knew it. I knew it. Yes, yeah. That that's a good one, though. I mean, I, I know very few institutions have lived into their uh, into their slogan than the way the United Methodists have. So uh, maybe not a good example.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, but okay. But I I want to bring us like back to earth one tiny bit. But I just have to take a quick pot quick pot shot at Adam Hamilton because I'm intrigued. <laughs> Um, first of all, there's this incredible uh, screenshot going around from the Super Bowl of the Kansas City Chiefs end zone where it says Chiefs and has the arrowhead. And then right behind it on the end line, it says end racism, um, which is amazing. But Adam Hamilton, pastor of a Meg- Methodist mega church in Kansas City, also loves to have former Kansas City Chief players in like video sermons at his church. He's done it many, many times. He goes to all the games. So it's just, this is, um, you know, I, it, it is no secret in the South that the SEC is is more popular than church. I mean, it, it 100% is. Um, but, you know, it's just hilarious to see someone take the like, sort of obvious cultural importance on it and try to turn it into like, oh, yeah, this is about how we're going to make better Christians. I want to get into the next thing, though, because this is where we get into the practices and drills. (laughs) practices and drills are the violent liturgy of Alabama football. It's said that no college team practices as intensely as Alabama. Players don't drill until they do it right. They drill until habits are so ingrained they can't do it wrong. Sabin insists success is the product of hard work and discipline, and discipline is fundamentally self-control, the ability to do right even if you don't want to, and the ability to quell the desire to go wrong. Drills have a moral dimension, inculcating character traits as well as physical skills. So this is basically everything about Peter Lightheart's Doctrine of Sin and how to overcome it.
0: Yes. Yeah, I don't even know what to do with any of that. I mean... Like I said, the violent liturgy of Alabama football. He 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 was he was building us to that, and maybe that's what it was. Maybe he just wanted to get. He's like, I just really want to talk about sin and Alabama football and being a man. Um, and so this is kind of I think the peak of the the peak of the article. Uh, I love players don't drill until they do it in, uh, until they do it right. They drill until habits are so ingrained that they they can't do it wrong. Yeah, I think you know, Carrie, when you mentioned it being like Friday Night Lights, this this is the the, <laughs> the line that really does it for me, which is like, oh, this is a guy who like. He doesn't know anything about this. Like you said, Isaac, he's just, he's just, he's totally projecting onto this. He has this idea about, he's just sitting there thinking about like uh, Nick Saban, like floating along the sidelines of practice, you know, uh, as, and, and just like touching all the souls of his players as they go by and and just blessing their lives one after another, one after another. It's like, it's, it's so, it's so like, it's just so like, I don't even know what the word for it is. It's so just like fictional <laughs> maybe that's it yeah anyway
2: well what's interesting to me about that quote is that it's also almost direct almost a direct quote from the documentary cheer on netflix about the navarro college uh cheerleading squad because that's like what the coach whose name escapes me right now like tells her players or like tells her cheerleaders and that's like a much and uh but the 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 point of the documentary cheer is not that uh it's actually good that these young people like sacrifice their bodies and do like incredibly dangerous things to for like two minutes of glory. Like the documentary is not uh, endorsing that. And so I just think it's interesting that this guy clearly watched it on Netflix and was like, oh, that's awesome.
0: So, so what if I took Coach Monica... <laughs> And made her a man. Like, what if? I, what's the only thing that can make Coach Monica better? If oh, if she was male, that's that. Yeah, that went through his mind. He, he's like, he couldn't be a man and watch cheer. That's what. That's exactly what happened. He he found himself up late at night watching cheer and being really into it. And he's like, oh shit, I got I got to do a one eighty on this. How can I save this? And Alabama football presented itself.
1: You know, the thing about it is that it's just this notion that his brand of Christianity loves is that like intense suffering and sort of being in a constant spiritual battle with these like private sins is something that if you get punished enough you'll be able to like harden your will until you can overcome them no matter what like it it just you know like the ego has to die before you can like um and you have to you know lose any desire have it pounded out of you until you are fundamentally in control of of all of your appetites i mean that that's like what all of these psychos who are worried about you know people getting horny really want right It's just to like turn Christians into unthinking automatons who are like never sort of you know because th- their fundamental view of the world is that you're constantly being barraged by. Sort of sinful, personal okay. temptations, and so what the liturgy, the violent liturgy, is supposed to do, is to like hammer out any like notion of of um, you know who you are as a human being until you're able to move through this world that you're constantly being told is like persecuting you and trying to get like pull you into hell. You can just move through it without like while resisting it, you know, like shining with.
0: The holiness
1: of of the liturgy, or something. So
0: this might be totally off track. So we can cut it out later. But there is when you were saying that it's something. There's something interesting about bringing these athletes that you know most of them are these five star unique athletes, right? And coming into these very specific individual like athletic gifts that are inherently um, you know physical. I mean, it's mental obviously as well, but like very like based in one's body. And then kind of with this paragraph, having a something saying that like well implying that the body and that kind of relationship of like the body being something that's ultimately bad that needs to be repressed and brought that back down to this, like everybody at the same level. So there's, I don't know, there's something interesting to me about that. I, I did scroll down to see if this Stay was- Say it with
2: me. It's Gnosticism. Yeah.
0: <laughs> there you know. I was searching for the word. Thank you, Carrie. <laughs> but I did scroll down to see if it was tagged with uh, homosexuality or pornography. It's not. So uh because when you were talking about that, Isaac, I was like, well, this could totally uh fit into their top two. Maybe that's how they maybe that's how they rank that everything comes back to the um, you know, gotta, gotta push down these urges. You know what? Sorry, but it, it, Carrie, like check me if I'm
1: wrong here, but isn't this exactly what it's a just a more obvious version of what our conversation about the Eucharist last time was about like, this is what people think the Eucharist does, right? Like this is what the whole like, oh, liturgy is going to save the church people think. Even if they wouldn't put it in terms of light heart, they think that it's like creating this bubble around you that, you know, forms you, catechizes you into like a different way of, Personally and sort of privately moving through the world, am I like totally off to see like a connection there?
2: No, I think that's I think that's spot on, um, and it makes me think of um, Dr. Lauren Winter's book, "The Dangers of Christian Practice," um, where I mean, like, she walks through several examples of the ways that Christian practices have been used for evil, whether it's like slaveholders, um, you know, specifically praying to. Uh, Discipline their slaves to like have the grace to like discipline their slaves well and be good slaveholders. Um, there's a couple of other practices in her book, but uh, I mean, like, the point of Dr. Winner's book is that uh, just because something is a Christian practice, that doesn't mean that it's forming us to good. And I think that your point is well made that like, uh, there, there's a certain strain of people who think that liturgy is inherently going to form us to good just by the act of doing liturgy and i th- honestly i think the close reading of this article is giving it more credit than it really <laughs> deserves but i do think that like lightheart it is at base saying that like the liturgy of doing football drills is probably just like morally forming these kids to good just by like getting hit over and over again in the alabama heat which i don't agree with but yeah, so I I, I think I, I think you're on track,
0: Isaac. And I'll, I'll push back a little bit on that because I think I think. I can't believe I'm about ready to say this. The, the liturgy, I think liturgy does this is this is where I've officially I have to turn my little statue of John Wesley around because I think this oh. is where I officially have gone off the Methodist Methodist bandwagon. But I, I think like liturgy does like ultimately have like a formation aspect to it. I think the problem that comes because it's you know the liturgy is this thing that's teaching people as you're going through it. You know it's 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 an experience um, that is happening, but it also is it's forming you in like multiple different ways. But it's not the, it shouldn't be the only like formation experience that you have and i think that that's to me is the the little bit of difference i think there is stuff about playing organized sports and especially about playing college football and playing for a good coach that would would be formational right it's not like that all of this stuff is bad um i think it's when you say this is the only thing in their life that is going to take them from being people that used to have their shirts untucked and throwing trash everywhere you know like going from that into like this kind of like weird um Uh, perfection that he's talking about in this. It's like, it's not the only thing. Like there are things about kind of going, if you've never been in a disciplined circumstance, like I I, kind of came from that and going into a place where things were expected of you, like having that responsibility helped me to learn how to have responsibility in other places in my life. But, I don't think it's the only place, right? And it can be easily be weaponized or become predatory. So I think that that to me, would be the same thing as like the liturgy itself and like the way that it kind of moves us into communion and how we think about that theologically and stuff like that is really important, but I don't think it's the only thing. And that's where I see it, especially with Episcopalians, is that they think that, well, we don't have to do anything else because the liturgy in the Book of Common Prayer is 90% scripture. It's like, yeah, but if they don't know what parts of scripture they're not going to be able to connect it. So I don't know. I'm I'm, I'm gently pushing up back against that. I think. We I, but I, but we probably basically agree.
1: Well, I I think that the difference is that I don't think this is about this article is about sports <laughs> at all. I think it's all just about Peter Lighthart's like obsession with you know obsession and glorification of someone having like total and utter control yes. over people's bodies. Yeah, and how he wishes that's what the church was. And how there's like, you know, even though it um even though that goal and aim is so foreign to a lot of the sort of ways that people on like younger people who are trying to revive some of these older traditions, they don't share that goal or that view of the church with Lightheart. They still use some of that logic in the way that they defend the practices of the church. And I think that ultimately it's just more complicated than that. You know, we don't have to be down on don't have to be down on the Eucharist but
0: I'm I guess I was you know feeling very low church recently but I guess that <laughs> it's just like I was like, I'm trying to get ordained here. We can't be low church. We, we can't. We have to have only adoration of the Eucharist on this podcast. <laughs> oh well, well. <laughs> Sorry, it's getting closer and closer. Right, do you need to leave before the fire quarter? Is that what we're... Is that what we're <laughs> exactly. One day I'm going to show up and be wearing <laughs> only a black shirt. And then, uh, and then a, like a couple months later, I'll finally have the collar. And so that's when you know the transformation is complete. So <laughs> start posting only well, about bet, Mary on my that, Twitter like, account. Oh, yeah.
1: Oh, yeah. <laughs> Sorry, um, go ahead. I mean, well, I I think that I'm still in the process of kind of hashing this out, but for myself, I mean, but like, the you know, when you, this is what you think Christian formation is about, right? Like moving through this, I mean, just, I, I can't help but go back to this serenity prayer, like this view of like, oh, we're lost, we're fallen, we're, we're we can't change anything about this fallen world. But, you know, Christ will move us through it, and and the only way that Peter Lightheart thinks people can move through this fallen world that's constantly assaulting them, mainly because you know I'm sure of all his weird sexual hangups and things about feminism and whatever else, is if you get beaten into submission by the liturgy. I mean, that's ultimately what he's saying. Yeah,
2: yeah, I agree, and I think there's a reason so many progressive uh, Christians and and just like people who have religious trauma in general, but really love those Mary Oliver lines about you don't have to be good. You don't have to, you know, crawl through the desert on your knees, repenting. You only have to let the soft animal of your body love what it loves. Like, I think there's a reason they resonate with so many people with religious trauma. And it's because this is like a pretty prevalent understanding across the board, uh, theologically, whether it's about liturgy or whether it's just about like taking every thought captive and, 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 The Holy Spirit and God convicting you. I mean, that's
1: all I have to say. That's where I was going with that. Well, but I and I, so I guess I would say that like the other side of that, I see in a lot of progressive circles is this notion that like if we read the right things, if we say the right things, if if we have the right representation, then it's also going to work itself out, right? We'll like suddenly move through the world in like a totally progressive way without. I mean, I, I guess that. You know, what I what both accounts really miss is just this deeper notion about like the and, and this gets back to the point I'm making about college football is that the deeper notions of all of the like fucked up shit that goes on that all of the power dynamics that control this that don't show up on the practice field, that don't show up on a Sunday morning, right? The massive amounts of capital, like the position where you are in the world, that ultimately, you know, that I think that uh I think that now I'm probably taking it way too far and projecting myself. But yeah, I think there's a danger there that somehow we can convince ourselves that even in progressive terms, we haven't really deconstructed as much as we think because we're saying something exactly like this, but just in a way that like our communities accept yeah. as good instead of really doing that work. Does that make... it my making any sense?
0: Yeah, there's, it's, it's almost a different kind of purity culture uh, in a way, um, which... We can unpack that later. Uh, Sarah's are previously, Isaac, you were uh, injured from the pod farm uh, for that episode, but she she brought something similar to that about, she notices a lot of people who consider themselves ex-evangelical when they kind of rearrive in places that are more progressive. They're actually, they're, a lot of times, are taking some of the things they've learned implicitly from there about how like how religion works, and and they're just applying it to a new set of circumstances that have more socially progressive kind of views about women or uh, queer people uh, or whatever. And so I, I I've been thinking about that since uh, since Sarah's been on here. Shout out to Sarah Czar. Um That how how do you how do you deconstruct that? Right? Like how do you could you we might you might resurface in the Episcopal Church, but if you still have this kind of like view of God or this view of uh, of a priest or whatever it is. That stuff that can easily be hidden inside of a progressive denomination. You just you just start talking about the BCP, uh, the Book of Common Prayer, more as opposed to um, whatever uh, scripture verses you're uh, talking about that day. So anyway, uh, yeah, that that totally tracks for me. Anything
1: else, to add, Gary? I've got nothing. Well, are you ready to enter the fight corner? Then oh. brought to you by Chili's.
2: The fight corner is open for business. <laughs>
1: Hell yeah. Let's go. Great.
2: I'm not sure who exactly that I'm inviting to the fight quarter today. Like it might be the entire Episcopal church. <laughs> so Brian, if you need to leave I, the Zoom call. Right,
0: I, I feel like I've got a meeting I have to go to everybody. <laughs>
2: <laughs> okay. This, so this is going to be like a little bit Episcopal insider baseball. And so I apologize to any non-Episcopalian listeners. Like I don't skip ahead or just dip now, I guess. No, we welcome but, you.
0: We welcome you into it.
2: Yeah. Well, welcome to the fight corner. <laughs> you can join me in this fight. But, uh, so uh, last week it was kind of discovered by the wider public that, um, the Washington national cathedral had invited Max Lucato to speak on Sunday, but like give a sermon on Sunday morning. And the, um, invitation was from Dean Hollerith apparently, who's the Dean of the National Cathedral. Um, there aren't that many Episcopal cathedrals. It's really hard to become a Dean. If you become a Dean, you're kind of on track to be a Bishop. You don't have a ton of authority over you. Just from personal experience, because I like lived at a cathedral for 18 months, um, there, like, nobody tells Deans what to do. Like there's just not a lot of people who have any say so above a cathedral Dean. I think that's an important dynamic to remember in this situation. Because uh, basically everyone found out that Max Lucato was speaking, and a lot of LGBTQ Episcopalians got really angry. Obviously, like really frustrated because uh, Max Lucato is not only like a best-selling author and megachurch pastor, but is also like noted to be extremely outspoken against um, like same-sex marriage, about uh, trans identities, kind of about anything. Regarding the gay community, he's like anti that. Yeah, so I don't. I'm trying not to get like so deep into it. But basically, everyone was mad. And rather than like take the L and be like, "Hey, you're right. We shouldn't have invited Max Lucato to speak at the National Cathedral when it's literally against the rules of the Episcopal Church. Like it's against the canons of the Episcopal Church for someone who is not licensed uh, to preach in an Episcopal Church uh, to do so. Like it's Uh, sorry that we violated the rules and invited a known homophobe that is going to like uh, represent an ideology that we literally split the entire church over. Um, Rather than like saying sorry for that and just like (laughs) dealing with it, they instead trotted out Bishop Gene Robinson, who's um, the first gay bishop ever appointed, had to get ordained in a bulletproof vest uh, because of so many death threats. And Bishop Gene Robinson gave like a little like, mini sermon when he was celebrating the Eucharist like before Max Lucato's sermon and basically said that like it doesn't matter what Max Lucado believes on LGBT issues because we've won because like I don't know like eschatologically we've won and I was I will save my commentary for the end <laughs> and so then like that was Sunday And everyone was really, when I say everyone, I mean myself and other LGBT Episcopalians were really hurt by all of these decisions. But then it like, it was over, like it happened and you can't exactly like undo anything. And so I really didn't expect to get an apology. And then this week, (laughs) Dean Hollerith was like, I hear you. I hear the hurt. We're gonna invite Max Lucato back to have like a panel discussion uh, no. about the harm <laughs> done to LGBT people. And everyone was like, excuse me. And so then it created like this second round of outcry about the whole situation, which only then, like a full week after the outcry began, did the dean of the cathedral and the bishop of the diocese of Washington issue apologies, which um, are technically apologies that's the most i can say for them
1: <laughs> they don't say sorry you were fitted
2: yeah they they acknowledge that they caused the pain and that's about the most i can say for them especially considering the bishop of washington's apology was like mostly quotes from emails that she'd gotten the fight corner is open for any and all people who think this was a good situation to have to begin with. And, uh, but I think the real, I've seen a lot of discussion about Max Lucado online um, and about the homophobia of it all. And like how Max Lucado has like, like, so the Episcopal news service articles about this, if you read them, uh, frame it as people getting angry that Max Lucado in a, well-publicized 2004 article compares same-sex marriage to legalizing incest or bestiality, which is really bad. Don't get me wrong. I'm not excited about that. But the framing of that makes it seem as if we're only mad about Max Lucato. And my bigger issue here is that there are people in the Episcopal Church in really high positions of power who are deans of the National Cathedral, who are bishops um, who are people that like make these decisions who think that somehow inviting Max Lucado is a good idea and didn't actually see the issue with that until until LGBT Episcopalians were like, hey, this sucks. And the in Okay. I know I'm sounding incoherent. I'm so pissed. <laughs> I'm so pissed, uh, which is why they're in the fight corner. But the thing about Dean Holler's apology that he posted is that he couldn't resist like explaining himself a little bit in the apology. And he was like, my rationale was that uh, I wanted to build bridges to evangelicals. And perhaps it's because I'm the child of an engineer. But when someone starts talking about building bridges, my first question is, where's the bridge going? And what's it made out of (laughs) and any bridge that you're trying to build to evangelicals is like a non-starter for me from the Episcopal church. If only because you are going to be building a bridge to someone who wants me fixed or dead. And I am not willing to compromise on that. And I've seen a lot of white cis gay men who are also priests, (laughs) like think that like basically agree with Bishop Gene Robinson to say that like we've won and it's okay to like want to build bridges with people who disagree on this issue. And you know what? I live in the fucking Diocese of Dallas. The Diocese of Dallas has not ordained a woman since 2007. I was in sixth grade when the last time they ordained a woman. Bishop Sumner, also welcome to the fight corner. (laughs) Um,
1: Again. (laughs) No, different bishop. No, that was, that was bishop, bishop last time.
2: <laughs> oh, wait, no. Bishop no, was in the five quarter last
1: week.
0: Oh, too. yeah. That's right. Back to back. You he brought his bruised body back into the, <laughs> he dug him up and propped oh, him back up. Yep.
2: It's just, we have not won in any sense. Gay people cannot get married in the Diocese of Dallas. You have to find a different, a priest from a different diocese who will do it because the bishop will not allow priests in the Diocese of Dallas to perform same sex weddings. They won't ordain women. I mean, not to get into like the Bishop of Albany of it all, who literally just got convicted on Title IV stuff because he would not ordain or marry LGBT people. Like, we have not won this fight in any real sense, and the idea (laughs) that it's okay to ask a known homophobe to speak on the national stage of the Episcopal Church—like, the fact that the dean, like, literally just like didn't think about it—and so many like logistical decisions had to go into making it happen and no one pulled the plug at any point speaks to like a higher institutional rot in the Episcopal church that has me (laughs) ready to commit arson.
1: Oh yeah. Well, I, everything about this is um, so lib that it's like, you know, it's almost beyond parody. But I, I, I think the biggest misnomer here is that building bridges. I mean, I love that question, Carrie. Where is the bridge going? Like, there, there is no desire on Max Lucato's part or any evangelicals' part to have some, not even to like, like offer. I don't even know what an olive branch from them would be. But they have no interest in changing their minds about anything about LGBT people. If anything, they see it as an opportunity to platform their voice to speak about why it's wrong. I mean, like the idea of inviting him back to talk about like the harm that evangelicalism has done to LGBT people—it's just like it's just an opportunity for him to do apologetics, and and ultimately, like the people that it's playing to are. Cis hetero people who are like, see, both sides are coming together because they have absolutely nothing to lose by him being there. They don't feel confronted about it. And, um, you know, I, I just think that it's like basically it, what it comes down to is the fact you pointed it out. Deans are not accountable to anyone. And at the level of power, this doesn't bother them. They'll have a conversation with anyone, right? They're like, oh, I'll. You know, I'll sit down and shake hands with with a. It doesn't matter because to them, nothing is changing. Um, but yeah, I just uh, it's just so fucking typical of all these people right now who are crying out for unity when there is no interest on the other side for unity of any kind, and frankly, not on you know not on like the progressive side either. Like, what is the point? But it's just, yeah, it, it's it's so difficult. It's incredible that they were like, the way to solve this is to invite him back.
2: And I, Okay, so I will add... Uh, sorry, Brian, I no. know I'm talking a lot. I'll, no, go. I'll it's shut you. up in a second. Um, but I will add that, so they have since scrapped that plan, apparently, and they're holding like a listening session, basically, for LGBT people and their allies to talk about the harm that was done to them, which um, I would ordinarily say is great, great first step. Um, except that we already ordain LGBT people. Like we already have canons of the church that protect LGBT people and women and all of the people that uh, Max Lucato thinks shouldn't be in a pulpit or like shouldn't exist. And the idea that we are just going to have a listening session because we messed up in this one instance is total bullshit. (laughs) Like a a listening session is not going to help this. Um, and is also going to the fact that we have a national cathedral at all, like, uh, excuse me. Sorry. So that's a different rant that I don't think the national cathedral, but, (laughs) but I think that it, it, I mean, to hold a listening session as if they have just learned about the idea that things could be harmful to LGBT people. So like if we have just learned that evangelicalism left a lot of their church membership with religious trauma because they were preached to understand their bodies as something like transgressive and they're just learning about that now. Fuck you. Welcome to the fight corner.
1: (laughs) Yeah, and also
2: this is happening on the national stage. Yeah, um, like the National Cathedral is such is such a specific context for all of this to happen, and because so many people know about the National Cathedral, not a ton of people know it's Episcopalian, but it's where presidents lie in state. It's where, I mean, the only thing I knew about the Episcopal Cathedral before, or like the National Cathedral before I became Episcopalian was that it held Matthew Shepard's funeral.
0: And- Where, where they so said, dramatic. but just, where they said that he, like, he has this home that's <laughs> safe from haters now. That's what they said during the damn uh, funeral. He has a home that is safe from haters now. So anyway, sorry, go ahead.
2: And it's, I mean, just the idea that all of this is happening in that specific space is really hurtful, not only because we have made such a big deal in the Episcopal Church of welcoming all people, but also because- I want to feel holy in a church before my funeral. Like, I want someone to tell me that it is okay to be non-binary, that it's okay to be trans, that it's okay to love women in a church before someone has killed me over it. And the Episcopal Church is one of the only places where that is true. And a listening session is not going to fix the fact that there are people at every level of the Episcopal Church who fundamentally disagree So it's incredibly hurtful. And you can all fight me about it in
1: the Chili's parking lot. I mean, that's, you know, beautifully said, Carrie. Uh, I mean, holy shit. You've had a couple of things recently that have just been like deeply profound. And that was another one. But it's just (laughs) like, we've just talked about this article where a person who is in the exact same Venn diagram of, you know, weird... Christian, whatever, is talking about like how you know LGBT people are threats to, you know, good um good white white male Christians. And we and they need not only do they need to be like beaten down and automized to like resist that threat, but also the the threats themselves need to be eliminated and segregated and like separated from their realm of life. I mean, that is the Benedict option. The third or fourth trending topic on First Things is how can I get trans people away from me? How can I get LGBT people of any kind away from me? How can I get Black people away from me? It's just like, you know, that the idea that there's going to be a bridge that is built there is just such a fucking uh, dangerous, dangerous idea because they... Have no interest in. I mean, for them, the only thing that allows them to do is stand up in those corners and like preach their own shit. And then, when you know shit like this happens, they get to claim that they've been persecuted. They get to like you know rile up their own base. They they do nothing but win when. Progressive leaders make mistakes like this. It's just like when Tom Cotton had that fucking article in the New York New York Times, and then his book got canceled. Like then he just gets to like say that, "Look, see, everything I said about these fucking people is right. They did it again. They're silencing me. I'm the victim." Like it it just redounds to their favor every time, you know. Progressive leaders fuck up like this, and it drives me crazy.
0: And can I I feel the need to say? Well, I'll echo what Isaac said, Carrie, and that what you kind of uh, described was really wonderful and and beautiful. and I appreciate that. and but I, I also feel the need to say that me not talking during this, like I you know I joke around about not getting ordained. but like for for shit like this, it's like that's not the reason you know I, I was I was not talking because I was listening to what you were saying and appreciating that because this is the sort of thing. it's like. All right, if we're going to if you're going to really put it down on the line, what do I care about more between getting to wear a collar full time or um you know the 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 sacred worth of all people being welcomed into the church that I now call home. I the, I hope that the the answer is is obvious there. So, you know, for me it's just I don't know. I I just remember my sitting with my daughter watching the the public service for Matthew Shepard in 2018 as right after we had joined the the Episcopal Church and and like just finally feeling like great, I can now present this to my daughter in a way that feels safe and feels good. And then it's like, you know, she, does, she doesn't give a shit about any of this. She, isn't, she is not on Episcopalian Twitter uh, or, or any kind of religious Twitter, uh, maybe TikTok. She does follow some nuns. But, but this does not, but, you know, it's just like, we don't even know what the damage this is doing to, to, to people like that who have kind of been brought up in this and they, they've only seen it as, this, as kind of this safe place. And so that's, I don't know, that's, I I'm, I'm just rambling now, but I, I appreciate what you said uh, immensely. And yeah, I think it's, I think they're rightfully in the fight corner.
2: Yeah. So if this is the thing that gets me fired. <laughs> Yellow.
0: <laughs> well, hey, that's just all in on the podcast for all of us. I was about to say,
1: um, <laughs> if you want to protect us all from unemployment so that we can continue <laughs> delivering the hottest takes, <laughs> then like and subscribe to our podcast, review it on on Apple Podcasts share it on Spotify, tell your friends about it. So we can all just work on the pod farm.
2: Yeah. And uh, not to go, not to go on, but I do think that the only, the only solution at this point in this particular situation is is either for Dean Hollerith to resign or to commit to like an actual reconciliation process that where he admits that where he admits that building bridges to Uh, white evangelicals is like not helpful. (laughs) Or like, like, I'm trying not to sound like I wanna cancel Dean Hollerith, although I have already invited him to the fight corner. But I and many other people are deeply hurt by this and I don't see a way forward uh, without some like serious reconciliation. And I also don't see that the National Cathedral is like willing to do that. So perhaps the best reconciliation, once again, fight me. I'm six feet tall and I'm not afraid. (laughs) as was revealed
0: last week. <laughs> I'm <was> still shook. <laughs> yeah, me too. I mean, I'm, the, I'm the, the shortest person. I don't like that at all. <laughs> <laughs> well, but, but, you know, now, I,
1: you know, just to like put one more point on it, it's just like, okay, then like... The typical reconciliation crap happens like, Oh, we we hear you. I never want to hear anybody. It's like the most branded shit ever when they're like, I hear you, Like, but I'm going to do absolutely nothing about it. People don't want to be heard anymore. They want to be fucking protected. They want to be safe. And it's not enough to just say, Oh, we're listening. Like, No, it's either like queer people are our people as a church or they're not. And... You know, the, on the final thing that just drives me nuts about all this is that the National Cathedral, big platform media companies that interview white supremacists, like whatever, they, all these people are always trying to build bridges in directions that absolutely fucking suck. And they're never trying to build bridges with, you know, people who are outside of the church and have an important word to say about to the church about damage done to LGBT lives. Or they're never trying to build bridges with, like, you know, National Muslim leaders that needs you know that need interfaith unity and connection to promote the health and well being of of their communities in a time of intense racism. Like they're they're not building bridges to leaders of the Black Lives Matter movement. It's always to let's build bridges with white supremacists, um, which gets back to the power dynamics of this, and that's the most discouraging thing to me because it's like if you want to bring some people in, how about the people who've been most hurt and feel like they can't. You know, be safe in church anymore? How about we? How about we try to build bridges to those people and, and listen to them for the sake of like the common life of lots of disenfranchised and vulnerable people in the world right now? And so, yeah, That's just it, it. Like the the tendency is always the same, and
0: tear down the institutions. That's. That's it. I'm gonna I'm gonna read this real quick. I, I was looking up the uh, different things from Matthew Shepard when he was laid to rest. His uh, ashes were laid to rest at the National National <laughs> Cathedral, and the the one of the quotes from the bishop is uh, when people pass by and they see the plaque in his honor, they will see that this is this is a church that has learned from the example of violence that we need to stand and be counted as the, among those who work for justice and the full embrace of all God's children. And uh, my my suggestion is just like live into that quote make that more than just a quote, right? Like in, in that one moment where you're on the national stage, Now is the time where you can, you know, you can take the L and still uh, live into the embrace uh, that all people are, you know, God's children. So there you go. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Yeah. So, well, truly all of my takes have been revealed today.
1: It is an apocalyptic age and uh, they are being revealed every episode until all three of us are not, no longer employable or we get canceled. <laughs>